for prayer. Father in heaven, we're asking now that as we open up this book, you would open up our hearts. We ask God that these things would be not just nice ideas, but that your Holy Spirit would truly speak to us. That the power of the word that spoke life into existence back in creation would speak life into our hearts even now, today. In Jesus' name, let everyone say, Amen. Amen. I'm catching a little bit of a ring. I don't know if we can correct that one. Thank you. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Well, I'll start reading. I'm reading from the New King James Version. The Bible says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Verse 13. Yes, I think it is right. As long as I am in this tent, in other words, as long as I'm still around, as long as you can hear me talking to you, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. You can tell he's got a clock ticking in his head, right? And so what he wants to talk to believers about is things that would stir them up. It's a really interesting term there. In the Greek, it's actually talking about rousing someone from sleep. And I was brainstorming with Debbie just last night. I was like, how many sleep stories are there in scripture? I don't know if even just this week you had little episodes of micro sleep. Uh, You know what I'm talking about? Like when you're praying and then you realize, wait, (laughs) that wasn't praying. (laughs) Or or even a little more dangerous when you're driving and you just kind of come to, hold on, hold on. I don't know. Maybe you can correct me uh, later, but I don't think that there's anyone else in Scripture that has more stories about being woken up from sleep than Peter. Think about it, right? You've got the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, they're on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and they fall asleep. But when they wake up, they see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus, right? Then you've got the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, the Spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. How can you not watch with me one hour, Jesus said. And then later on in Acts, Acts chapter 10, uh, the word sleep isn't quite used, but Peter is praying on a housetop and he falls into a trance of sorts. He, He has a vision. And then later on, Peter is actually in prison, about to be executed the following day, but he is in a deep sleep, so deep. Then an angel has to strike his side to wake him up. So if there's anybody who knows in scripture what it's like to need to be woken up, it's Peter. And when he's writing this letter, he's writing to believers because he fears that spiritually they're tempted to go on cruise control. I don't know, maybe you have one of those cars that has one of those indicators that looks like a coffee mug with steam coming out. Have you seen that? It's in some newer cars. It's actually an alert that you're getting sleepy and you need to take a break. Have you seen that before? Oh, no. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's not in my car either. Uh, just, just, <laughs> just in the cars I've borrowed. Anyways. <laughs> but here it is. Peter, he's writing to stir us up. And this is coming from one who knows the dangers of what it's like to fall asleep at the wheel. 
All right? And so my prayer for this journey, as we start Second Peter, my prayer for this journey is that God would stir in me, stir in you, a faith that keeps growing and a hope that keeps watching till Jesus comes again. Does that sound good? Yeah? All right, so we're going to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. A common way to open a letter, uh, you know, it starts with a, a self-identification and then an audience identification. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So who is this letter from? It's from Peter. Yes, Simon Peter. And I don't know what stories come to your mind when you think about Peter. Maybe they are sleep stories, okay? But maybe there are other stories that aren't so uh, complimentary, we could say. Yeah. But what I love about Peter is that when he's identifying himself, his identity is bound up not in his past failures, but in Jesus who saves him from his failures. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus. Boy, he has come a long way since that night of Jesus' trial. He's a bondservant. He feels indebted to Jesus, completely and willfully bound to Jesus. He owes all things to Jesus. That's what he's saying. I'm, a, I'm so indebted to this man. He is my everything. And then he says, I'm an apostle. In other words, when he thinks of himself, he thinks of himself as a man on a mission. A man with a purpose. And that purpose is so wrapped up in Jesus. This mission, this commission, he has been sent by and sent for Jesus Christ. And then when he identifies his audience, I love it. It says, to those who have, my Bible says, obtained. Do you have a different word there? In, in verse 1? To those who have Okay, maybe it's just obtained. Received? Okay, awesome. There it is. A little bit better. Because in this version where it says who have obtained, it, it actually sounds like they've done something to get their faith. But in reality, the, the term itself is a reference to something that's not by human attainment, but by divine appointment. The word is related to actually casting lots. You see this word translated throughout the New Testament, and it's in reference to, you know, this lot was cast and things like this. And it, it, it sense, in the sense of this wasn't by my choice, this was just granted to me. So what we're talking about is Peter's writing to people who have faith, not because they have pursued it per se, but because God has pursued them. And if you haven't caught that about the gospel, it's not that we have found Jesus, but that Jesus has found me. Yeah. See, faith is something that we're granted. Faith is something that we are gifted. And it's precious. It's precious. What does the rest of it say? To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. Note the description, how Peter describes this faith that we've been gifted. It's not just precious, but it's a like precious faith. Well, precious like what? Precious like the faith that I have, Peter says. It's of the same value as the Apostle Peter's faith. 
I don't know, just let that sink in just for a moment, because I don't know if you've ever had this thought come to your mind. Man, I just wish that I had a faith like Paul. I had a faith like Peter or John or some other spiritual giant in your circle. I tell you what, Peter is saying, no matter what station of life or office in the church, each of us has been given a measure of faith that is precious and equally so. Your, your gift of faith, my gift of faith is of equal value because it's equally effective for our salvation and redemption. Do you believe that today? No. Yeah, you've obtained like precious faith. Precious like that of the apostles who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus. That faith can be and is given to you and me. Yeah. And so we're, we're going to go through just line by line here, just the first four verses of Second Peter chapter 1. And, and hopefully, so far, you've heard the first of these stirring reminders. The first stirring reminder from Second Peter 1 is that we've been given a God-given identity and faith. That's what he wants to stir us up to, wake us up to. This, this identity, it's not based on what you've done. It's, on based what, or it's based on what he has done. This faith, it's precious because it's a gift from the hand of God. All right, so that's stirring reminder number one. The second reminder is that there is multiplied grace and peace. It's right here in verse two. It's a prayer of blessing that Peter prays. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Wow, what a combo, yeah? Grace, God's favor. Peace, God's wholeness. Don't rush past this line as if it's just a mere formality, something that every letter you know, in the New Testament starts with. No, grace and peace, these are things that this world cannot replicate. In other words, they are heavenly gifts. Which is why Peter prays that they would be ours. So question, are they ours? Grace, peace, are they yours today? Grace, it's, it's unmerited favor. It's God's pleasure, God's delight to save us. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've done this or that to deserve it. But God's grace is power, his power to save, not because what we've done, but because of what he has done. Do you know God's grace today? Uh, just earlier this week, I was going through a book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, uh, just kind of prepping myself for a future sermon series. So just kind of tuck this away. The premise of this book is that you cannot be spiritually mature while being emotionally immature. That's a deep one. Let that one sink in just a moment. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that in a few months. <laughs> but yeah, he, he, he kind of coins this, or not coins, he phrases what's so amazing about grace in a way that just really struck me this week. It says, the gospel says you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe. Yet, you are more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. Because Jesus lived 
and died in your place. Wow. God is good. Amen. And his grace is sufficient for all our need. Do you know this grace today? Do you know God's peace? Grace and peace, right? Peace is God's wholeness. This is something that we talked about just a few, uh, few weeks ago when we were talking about peacemakers, bridge builders. But God's peace is his wholeness. It's oneness. It's saying that all that was broken, all that was shattered in our lives is reconciled and mended in the one who was broken for us. Peace with God. Peace that our standing with God is restored. Peace that declares, I belong. I'm accepted in the beloved. No matter how stormy or shaky the circumstances may have been or are today. Do you know this peace? Peter's praying that it would be ours. Grace and peace are such complete gifts. Man, if, if grace is mine, if peace is mine, really what more could I want in life? Think about that. If God's favor, if God's wholeness is mine, there's really not much more I need. And what's beautiful about this here in verse 2, grace and peace, Peter doesn't just pray that grace and peace be, be uh, uh, something that we have on the, uh, uh, you know, the, the periphery of our lives. It's not something that he wants us to taste a sliver of, but he wants us to experience it in exponentially abundant measure. Right? Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Yeah. And then how do we avail ourselves of this? The rest of the phrase says, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Friends, it's in knowing Jesus. It's in knowing, not just knowing about God, having facts about God in your mind that gives you grace and peace. No, it's personally knowing him. It's in a relationship with Jesus that we receive this grace and peace, not only in sample sizes, so to speak, but in multiplied measure. Ah, stir it up, right? Stir in me this, this, this God-given identity and faith. Stir in me this multiplied grace and peace. And then in verses 3 and 4, the last two verses that we'll focus on this morning, verses 3 and 4 actually unpack how this grace and peace multiplied experience is even available to us. So the third stirring reminder on, on Peter's mind, just in this opening, is a reminder about divine power and promises. Divine power and promises. Let's read it. Verse 3 and 4, it says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. A mouthful, yeah? Actually, all of those from verses 2 to 4, that's one sentence right there. You thought Paul got lengthy. Here's Peter, all right? Peter's going for it. So how is this multiplied grace and peace experience actually available to us? It's available to us by God's divine power. 
Now, in, in verse 3, it says, as his divine power has given to us all things. Actually, when you're reading it uh, in the original text, the all things comes first in the, in the sentence. It's as if Peter is kind of putting this out in the forefront. All things, do you know? All things are available to us. All things, all grace, all peace, all we would ever need for life and godliness. You see that pairing right there? Life and godliness. Life, what, what Peter is talking about is not just the, the mere physical existence type of life. The bios would be the, the Greek term. But the Greek term here is zoe. It's not just the physical experience, or, sorry, physical existence, but it's the quality experience of life that Jesus came to give. It reminds me of John chapter 10, verse 10. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Right? Peter heard those words, Peter clung to those words, and he realizes that life is not just pie in the sky. Well, someday maybe I'll have it. No, God's divine power has given us all things necessary for that kind of life right now. What? <laughs> he gives us all things necessary for abundant life and also for the godly life. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Godliness, ah, man, it's kind of a nebulous term. Maybe you kind of have a feel for what it could be. But godliness, it, it's really talking about both the inward resonance, when our hearts value what God values, that shows up in outward obedience where we walk in ways that God would have us walk. Man, we cannot underestimate all that God's divine power has made available to us. All for the abundant life. All for the godly life. And maybe you've been there too. You've, you've wondered, do I really have what it takes to live a godly life? You know? I mean, in your mind, you may be convinced or convicted about what the godly decision would be in this situation, what the Christ-like response would be to this person or that relationship or even this temptation or that struggle. But then you just don't feel like you can. Or you don't, maybe you don't even feel like you want to walk according to that conviction. You wonder to yourself, ah, do I even have what it takes? And the answer to that question, the short answer to that question is no. <laughs> you and I don't have what it takes. I don't know if that's a news flash for you, but let me just break it to you. The ability to live the godly life is not in our power. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 puts it like this. This is Paul writing. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. He's talking about the natural heart, the natural way that we are wired. It's enmity. It's at hostility with God. Why? For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. Like, we cannot. Peter knows this full well from firsthand experience, right? His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. Peter, of all people, has experienced the insufficiency of his humanity, but Peter has also experienced the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. And that's why he's stirring us up. 
to remember that all things for life and godliness have been given to us, not been obtained by us, but have been given to us by his God's divine power. We can experience the same. We can experience this today. We don't have what it takes. Yeah, that's right. But his divine power has made not just some things available for the possibility of a godly life, but all things available for the abundant life, for the godly life. And it's found in the knowledge of Jesus. How does the rest of the verse say? Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And that word knowledge, that's experience knowledge. That's experimental knowledge, not just intellectual, factual knowledge. It's, it's as we grow a trusting relationship with Jesus, day by day, step by step, that we can avail ourselves of all that God's divine power has given to us. It's incredible. It's incredible. And when we know Jesus in all his glory, in all his character, when we know Jesus and how good he truly is, we'll not only know his divine power, but also his exceedingly great and precious promises, right? The, the third stirring reminder is not just God's divine power, but also his divine promises. Read it in verse 4. Verse 4, Peter says, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious, what's the next word in your Bible? Promises. Man, the promises of God. I wonder sometimes if I value the promises of God as much as Peter values the promises of God. <clears throat> Peter is stirring us. He, he's waking us up. We, we have a tendency to fall asleep on the promises of God, apparently. Because they're not just great promises. They're exceedingly great promises. Right? They're magnificently great promises. The word there is mega. They're huge. They're encompassing way more than we often think or dare to think. And not only are they exceedingly great, they are precious. It's the second time precious shows up just in the span of these few verses. They're, they're of such extreme value because they came at such an extreme cost to the giver of these promises. So Peter wants us to know, man, these promises of God, they're not just nice sayings or cliches to, to put on your walls or to stick on your rear bumper or whatever the case might be. The promises of God are not just hallmark cards. They're not just warm fuzzies. They are things, words of life that we can stand upon and build our very lives upon. They're magnificent. They're precious because they make us partakers. What does it say? That through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You, you wondered, man, do I have what it takes to live a godly life? The promises of God are sufficient to make us partakers, not of our old selves, but of our resurrected life in Christ. They have power to change our lives. They have power to convert our souls. Now, this idea of partakers, it, it, just, it means that God's promises are, are, are the avenue through which we become sharers with the divine. Sharing in the same that the life of Christ 
actually becomes our life too. Now, I don't want to like import into this some pagan concept that we become gods in, in any sense like that. Please, let's be distinct and clear about that. No, Paul, I mean, this is what Paul talks about in his epistles. He uses this simple phrase of being in Christ. Right? Or at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. What in the world is he talking about? In other words, that everything that Christ is and has... That becomes ours too. And all that we are and have becomes his too. In other words, Jesus, he shared in our poverty so that we could share in his riches. He partook of our human nature so we could partake of his divine nature. Is an exceedingly great and precious promise. That's the gospel promise. These are the reminders that Peter is stirring us up to. So question, are you stirred today? Are you awake to God's identity and faith that he's given to us? Are you awake to the grace and peace that is actually multiplied in our hearts? Are you awake the power and promise of God to make us partakers of his divine nature. Maybe you're wondering, you're hearing all this good stuff, and you're wondering, the, you know, the, the cautious side of you is wondering, how, how do I know that this is more than just fluff? Right? How do I know that this is more than just wishful thinking? Here's how I know. I look to Jesus on Calvary's cross, and when I see him there, I see the God who has given all is actually the God who gives us an identity and faith in him. I see that the God who loves us more than his own existence actually assures us of grace and peace in multiplied measure. I see the God who became sin for me and has given us divine power to become the righteousness of God in him. Look to Calvary's cross today. Friends, these stirring reminders aren't just for us to think about and say, oh, that was a nice thought. These stirring reminders are ours to personally receive, to embrace by faith, to cling to as if these reminders are more real than my current feelings. <laughs> and so look to the cross and receive not just the blessings he gives, but receive him himself. Receive him himself. Is that your desire today? Yeah? Yeah. Say yes to the God who makes all things available for life and godliness. And so here we are, you know, for those of us here in this physical space, we have the opportunity to break just now for foot washing, for communion. And as we do, the simple invitation today is to not just go about this as, as routine, but to engage in the acts of foot washing and then later on the eating of the, the bread and the drinking of the juice, to engage in these things as outward acts that are actually expressing your internal choice, your internal faith to receive all that God has made available to you. Will you do that today? Yeah?
That when, you, when, when you're being washed and when you are, are humbling yourself to wash someone else, that you would allow all that has maybe gotten in the way of, of your identity uh, being bound up in Jesus, that you would allow those things to be cleansed. That grace and peace, as you're, as you're receiving the brokenness of Jesus, you would also receive the wholeness he grants to you. The sense of favor that is upon you. So much so that he shed his very blood for you and I. Oh man, God is so good. Receive him today. So here's what we'll do. We'll pray and then we'll dismiss. For those of you who are joining online, I, I invite you, like if you have arrangements there where you can uh, celebrate communion in your home amazing. If that's not possible for you, we'd be happy to take communion to you. So uh, go ahead and reach out to us through our contact page, fcsdachurch.org slash connect. And yeah, we'd love to be able to schedule a time where we could take that to you. Um, but yeah, here in this space, what we'll do is we'll pray and then we'll break uh, for foot washing. We've got separate rooms designated. The fellowship hall is going to be designated for married couples and families. And then uh, the ladies will be in the primary room, I believe. So just go through this, uh, the education wing down here, and it'll be the first room on your right. And then gentlemen, we've actually moved locations from the normal youth room. Apparently that's gotten a little too crowded. So we're going to go to the school lobby. Um, so just a little bit further down the hall. Okay? So let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to lead us through step by step. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we are thankful that you would not allow us to, to fall asleep to our, to our death and destruction, but that you've given us life-giving words, words that would stir us up. And you've also given us life-giving actions that would allow us to, to receive all that you have made available. And so today we pray for a spirit of awareness as well as a spirit of faith. That these outward expressions, these outward acts would really be a demonstration of our internal choice to trust all to you. Thank you so much for being our all-sufficiency. We pray in Jesus' name, let the family say, Amen. Amen.